said that, I'm like, did he mean 20? <laughs> right. Two pens is 20. <laughs> I didn't want to correct you, but yeah. No, that's what they did. <laughs> okay. Is but most of them no are... news is good news situation? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Go ahead and do it. We'll right. see. They get a big old calcium plug in their arm. We'll know. Okay. Okay. Just please correct as I make horrible, horrible errors. <laughs> All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Down East EM Podcast. I have a particularly special guest today. I am pleased to be joined by George Willis. He's an ED physician with a passion really for all things endocrine. Um, And we're going to be talking about pediatric DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. George, welcome to the show and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Jason, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, So I'm the clerkship director and one of the APDs at the University of Maryland. And I've really had a strong passion for anything endocrine. Um, it's something that has my favorite patient population to take care of. And it's really what I'm, um, I guess I'm, I've developed an, a niche in endocrine emergencies. And so I always have, anytime I get an opportunity to talk about anything endocrine, I jump all over it. Perfect. <laughs> so thanks, thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely! Thanks for joining us, and thank you for taking that on that cross to bear. I don't know if there's a lot of people super excited about endocrine, um, <laughs> but I appreciate that you're one, and I really appreciate that you're here with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk kind of a few specifics about DK in the pediatric patient. We're going to really hit a couple things uh, fast and hard: insulin and fluids. Are you ready? Sounds great. Yep. Sweet. All right, so let's talk first about the insulin side of things. So the classic teaching in emergency medicine with managing DKA, I remember in residency anything, was to start with an insulin bolus, then follow that with the infusion, right? And the thought process was that we're going to overwhelm this uh, relative insulin insufficiency seen in DKA, and then suppress these long words, this lipolysis and this hepatic gluconeogenesis and hopefully prevent any further acidosis in the patient. Now, many shops and places have moved away from that practice, even in adult patients, my shop included. But when I was trained, on the other side of that, it was I was trained to never do that in the pediatric patient, to never give the insulin bolus because it can increase the risk for the dreaded cerebral edema. George, is that true? Sure. So... We all know insulin is needed to reverse the ketogenesis that's present in DKA. And that, that age-old question exactly is, how much insulin should we be giving? Well, in the kids, in the pediatric population, the answer is almost always never too much when it comes to most things. <laughs> so with the pediatric population, they're actually a little bit more sensitive to things like fluid shifts and electrolyte shifts and osmolarity shifts. And the thing that we're most concerned about, obviously, is that very dangerous complication of cerebral edema. So in reality, there's never been a study that has really shown true causality or true association of an insulin bolus with cerebral edema. There's a suspicion that that insulin does cause shifts in the osmolarity and shifts in some of the electrolytes, and that can certainly make the person at risk for developing cerebral edema, but there's no true 
association that's ever been associated with it. However, there is an increased risk of hypoglycemia, which the pediatric population certainly does have increased morbidity with because they can't tolerate uh, hypoglycemia for very long as opposed to the adult population. Interesting. So in reality, the people always talk about you know, the rate of glucose drop and, you know, if we give them too much insulin, the glucose is going to drop too fast and that's going to cause them to have, you know, increased fluid shifts. But in reality, it has nothing to do with that rate of glucose drop. So does it increase the risk? It probably does. However, there's never been a true randomized controlled trial that's out there that's shown that there is a true increased risk. Interesting. And this might be a glass half empty look at things like that, but I find time and time again, when we come up with a really nice physiological explanation for something, when we study it, we find in reality that that's not actually there. Either sure. that association isn't there or that's not why that happens. Yep. So that I, I have always been one to look a lot at the physiology and the pathophysiology of things and try to figure out why this occurs. And there's a number of studies that have looked at cerebral edema and causation and tried to establish it. And in reality, we really still don't know. <laughs> There's so many things that are out there. Some people look at the increased amount of acidosis. Some people have looked at things like increased urea, decreased mm. sodium, the administration of sodium bicarbonate. And we'll get into this a little bit today with fluids, but they haven't found a true smoking gun yet in terms of what truly causes cerebral edema. So I think... Once we get there, we'll know. But until then, we're kind of just playing things a little bit cautiously. Okay, fair enough. But it is an important take-home to recognize that the insulin bolus is going to create a higher risk for that hypoglycemia in our pediatric patients. So therefore, George, I ask you, how should we be dosing our insulin in our pediatric DKA? Sure. So I tend to stick to the current recommendations, and this is kind of across the globe now in terms of, of pediatric recommendations for insulin infusions, and they stick with that 0.1 units per kilogram per hour of regular insulin infusion. Now, there's some pundits that recommend 0.05 units per kilogram per hour, especially in young children or a new onset diabetics. Okay. I would do that as well. So especially in your younger kids, less than five years old, who probably are going to have a much higher shift in that glucose. They may have a, a higher rate of drop in that glucose. So I may tend to stick to that 0 0.05 units per kilogram per hour in that population. But for the most part, I'm trying to stick to that 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, especially in the severe DKA patients, your patients who have really low pHs, have profound acidosis. We know that we need to have that higher dose of insulin to help correct the acidosis and, and certainly put them at a risk of having adverse outcomes. Okay, interesting. And can I tell you that I see a lot of 0.14 as kind of the new insulin infusion dose after the bolus went away. Is there a yeah, to so, that or should you be lower? So there's this, there's one study, well, there's actually a couple of studies now that have looked at that 0.14. And in most circumstances, those studies were trying to compare it to the bolus plus infusion treatment regimen, that bolus of 0.1 unit per kilogram, and then the infusion rate afterwards of 0.1 unit per kilogram per hour. And they found that there was no statistically significant differences between the two. And so some have recommended that 0.14 units per kilogram per hour. 
I think that gets a little messy when it comes to making calculations and certainly when titrating drips down, which some protocols have started looking at. So I, I tend to stand to that 0.1 unit per kilogram per hour because I've, I've found that in most circumstances, and if you look at the literature, there's really no need for that bolus. And so I think that if we're comparing a dosing regimen to that bolus plus infusion rate, I think sticking to, and we've shown that that bolus plus infusion rate can be harmful. Mm -hmm. I think sticking to just the infusion rate and leaving it, the math very simple, leaving that 0.1 unit per kilogram per hour is, is sufficient. Okay, excellent. And so to summarize that, in our really little kids, in the newly diagnosed diabetic, maybe 0.05, bringing it up to 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. And probably in these kids staying away from the 0.14, which is a little bit heftier of a dose. Sure. All yep. Right. And so when are we kind of out of the woods? You know, we're very comfortable taking care of adult DKA. And, I, you know, I'm just like, okay, you're 18. I can treat you like an adult. You're 15. Can I treat you like an adult? Really, my question here, at what age cut point can we stop worrying about cerebral edema? So that's a hard question. Thank <laughs> it's, you. It's certainly up in the air. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure what the true cutoff is. If you look at most literature that looks at that specific question of, you know, when does cerebral edema stop happening? There's not a lot of literature out there. And most of the the literature that's out there that looks at cerebral edema quotes ranges ranging up to 15 and in some studies even up to 18 where they see it. Mm. And so it would be easy to make that assumption that, you know, 15 or 18 would be certainly the cutoff. But there's case reports of young adults, some as high as 26 years old, who get cerebral edema and die from it. <laughs> and the unfortunate thing is that with most of these young adults is they are often new onset, whereas in the pediatric population, there's no association or correlation between new and established diabetes in terms of the development of cerebral edema. So my practice in terms of adults really is to be more watchful over my new onset adult diabetics who come in and decay. But certainly, I think around that 15 to 18, or probably would say 18 would probably be the age cutoff that we really probably can stop worrying about it. And again, just being careful in our new onset diabetics, regardless of age who come in and decay. That's a beautiful little pearl. I didn't know that. So in our newly recognized diabetics, say you're, you're 24, 25, generally not where you're going to be thinking a lot about cerebral edema, but we should recognize that that patient might be at a higher risk than the 24, 25-year-old that's been in DK seven, eight times before. Sure. And yep. maybe in those circumstances, maybe do the 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. Maybe don't slam them with fluids, especially if they're not in severe, severe state in terms of their acid-base status and bring them out of it more slowly to try to decrease that risk. Absolutely. Excellent. All right. So talking about the adult patient a little bit, how are you, George Willis, dosing your insulin in the adult patients? Bolus, no bolus? What's your infusion rate? How do you do it? So when you look at the literature comparing infusion versus bolus plus infusion, there's no additional benefit, including it doesn't drop your glucose any faster the acidosis nor the anion gap resolves any faster, and it doesn't decrease ICU or hospital length of stay by using the bolus. So in reality, it doesn't give you any additional benefit. However, what it does potentially do is cause some harm. And so in the big study, which is the Goyal study, which looked at the bolus versus the 
non-bolus, in those patients, there was a trend. It wasn't statistically significant, but there was a trend toward a higher incidence of higher potassium requirements and hypoglycemic events, the six-time higher incidence of hypoglycemic events. Mm. So certainly does have an increased risk of inducing hypoglycemia and potentially hypokalemia as well. And so I personally say no bolus, just go ahead and give the infusion. At point one. Definitely a 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, and I stick there. Again, peds, adults, I try to stick to that 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. Perfect. I love that. Keep it simple. That's right. Yes, keep it simple, stupid. All right, so we, we drifted off the pediatric area. We're going to bring it back to peds, DK, and let's talk a little bit about fluids now. So the general practice is to give a bolus somewhere between 10 and 20 cc's or mLs per kilogram for the kid. Now, there's a pretty good amount of published literature on the topic, but I have to say, I try to read it. I try to listen to it. The conclusions are a little bit elusive. You know, as recently as April of this year, 2020, Sanjay and Mike on EMA reviewed a paper of 120 kids with DKA looking in the fluid bolus that was given to these kids and the risk for cerebral edema. To kind of hit the punchline of this story, there was really no difference. The conservative approach, which was pretty close to 10 cc's per kilo, versus the liberal approach where they were giving up to about 20 cc's per kilo, no difference in the outcomes. So I ask you, George, is there a risk for cerebral edema with increasing volumes of fluid administered to the child? So looking specifically at that paper, which was a retrospective study, they found no difference between the groups, specifically looking at length of stays in the hospital and bicarb normalization. Now, we can obviously infer that that probably meant that there was no increased risk of cerebral edema, but no kids in that study actually developed cerebral edema. So it's hard to make that inference. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so... The, the study that I go to is the Kupperman study, which was published in New England Journal back in 2018. And this is probably the go-to study that looks at rate of infusion and if it increases the risk of development of cerebral edema. 1,300 kids across eight U.S. centers. And it was a two-by-two two factorial study looking at fast group, which is two 10 milliliter per kilogram boluses, and then taking half the maintenance and deficit and giving it in the first 12 hours, and then the rest over the 24 hours after. And then there's a slow group looking at one 10 milliliter per kilogram bolus, and then the maintenance and deficit all spread out over the next 48 hours. Okay. They gave two different types of fluids in both of those groups. One got normal saline at 0.9%, and one got half normal saline at 0.45%. And they found that there was no statistically significant difference in the development of cerebral edema. It developed in all groups. And they looked at, you know, the the kind of cutoff for what they called the development of cerebral edema was if their GCS dropped to 14 or below during mm. the infusion of those fluids. And so some patients, you know, described a headache. Some of them got lethargic. Some progressed all the way to full-blown cerebral edema, and one kid actually died. Mm. Um, but in, the, in that, that, that statistical analysis, they determined that there was no statistically significant difference in terms of development of cerebral edema based on not just in rate of infusion, but also in terms of the amount of sodium that was in the fluids that was administered. So that's my kind of go-to in terms of showing that there really isn't a whole lot of risk in terms of rate of infusion, mm -hmm. in terms of risk of cerebral edema. And, and by that, when you say rate of infusion, are you also including the bolus amount? So 
kind of what I do in terms of fluid boluses and fluids for patients with pediatric DK is I kind of follow the British. So follow the British. Mm. <laughs> the British Society of Pediatric Endocrine and Diabetes guidelines, which were just released in April of 2020, where they made some actual changes to their previous recommendations are kind of the go-to uh, that I, I kind of practice for, for my peds DK patients. So they had previously made a recommendation for early inotropes to avoid this increased fluid demand and increased fluid administration in the pediatric population. With their new guidelines, what they actually have done is said, it's really not as bad as we think it is. So let's administer fluids in a safe way, but in an efficient way. So kids who come in in shock, hypotensive, tachycardic, or have decreased capillary refill and show signs of true fluid dehydration or volume mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. Those kids, 20 milliliters per kilogram over 15 minutes. Then afterwards, they continue to reassess their volume status and give 10 milliliter per kilogram boluses up to 40 milliliters per kilogram total. And then after the administration of 40 milliliters per kilogram total, they consider using inotropes after that point in time. Wow. Okay. Now, if they still show signs of being volume down, they certainly can administer a further 10 cc per kilo bolus. But at that point in time, they're trying again to avoid over-administering fluids. Sure. But all the way up to 40, that's, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that's showing safety essentially is what you're exactly. saying. Exactly. Right. We were pretty worried about this to the point where they're saying, yeah, just give them norepi. Yes, right. dopamine. It's fine. Exactly. Or, or dopamine, I mean. Um, but don't, geez, don't give them fluids. No, no, no. Give right. them some pressors instead. Um, but, and they backpedaled on that. They, they're seeing that um, this monster that we are uh, concerned about, and rightfully so, is not as common and is probably not as associated with the fluid bolus that we thought. Right. So if you, even if you look at the Kupperman study, I mean, they were using some pretty conservative treatment guidelines. I mean, two, ten milliliter per kilogram boluses. I mean, you could have just put that together and called it 20 milliliter per kilogram bolus. When you said that, done. I'm like, did he mean 20? <laughs> right. Two pens is 20. <laughs> I didn't want to correct you, but yeah. No, that's what they did. <laughs> okay. So the, the British guidelines then go on to say if they're not in shock, Mm -hmm. Then they do a 10 milliliter per kilogram bolus over 60 minutes and then again reassess. So they try to, again, administer just enough fluids to get them volume rehydrated, mm -hmm. but without going overboard. So okay. that's kind of what I stick to. So if they're in frank shock, 20 milliliters per kilogram over 15 minutes and then continue to reassess. And then if they're not in shock, but you just want to give them some IV fluids to, you know, maybe they have tacky mucous membranes or they are complaining that they, they're not tolerating PO or they're vomiting right in front of you, then certainly 10 milliliters per kilogram over 60 minutes and then reassess. Okay. And they are likely volume down, right? The, the polyuria is, is in the tachypnea probably leading to some of these losses. So it's definitely appropriate to be giving volume. Absolutely. And, but, and don't be afraid of the 10 or the, or the 20. Correct. Excellent. Um, and so you hinted at this a little bit in your discussion of that paper, but I want to talk about fluid type. Now, my general practice in, in adult patients and a lot of patients where, you know, we start up front with normal saline because before we even see that they're on the board, the nurses have probably put up a liter of saline. Mm -hmm. um, in situations where I suspect a large volume resuscitation in terms of fluid type, I will switch them over to LR because of that, you know, hyperchloremic acidosis associated with large volume of normal saline. <laughs> Am I 
crazy in doing so? Should I not be making it that complicated? And what do you do? Sure. So my practice is actually to start with balanced solutions. Um, so my nurses know that I start with my go-to at my shop, which is plasma light. We have a pretty, I don't know if we, I, you would say we have steak in plasma light, but we certainly <laughs> use a lot of plasma light in our emergency department for resuscitations, but I especially use plasma light for my diabetic ketoacidosis patients, adults and children. But I don't think you're crazy to grab the first couple of boluses with saline. I don't think that that's the wrong thing to do. And you've recognized the big problem with using normal saline. My colleague, Mike Winters, likes to say that there's nothing normal about normal saline. And mm -hmm. in reality, that's probably true. We are aware of this, this what we call NAGMA, this non-anion gap hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis that is associated with a large volume of saline. But if that's all you have and you don't have anything else and you need to resuscitate your patient, give them saline. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. When you're, what we're noticing now, we recognize obviously again that balanced solutions are probably the best going to saline is probably fine. And in the adult literature, there's pretty good literature that shows that balanced solutions are better even in the DKA patients who come in who are in DKA. But that just hasn't happened in the pediatric population yet. There's two studies that are out there, both looking at balanced solutions. One was P-Lite or plasma light versus normal saline. And then one was LR versus normal saline. And in both of those studies, neither showed any difference between the types of fluids in terms of resolution of acidosis, length of stay in the hospital or in the ICU. So it just hasn't translated to the pediatric population. It probably has mostly to do with the fact that there's much smaller volumes of fluid that are given versus with the adult population where we're giving liters and liters and liters. We're talking about milliliters for our pediatric population. Uh, but in the grand scheme of things, there's been no difference between the two if you use balanced solutions versus saline in the pediatric population. So maybe some bigger studies are needed, but for now, we're still, we don't have anything to show any additional benefit with the balanced solutions. Sure. And I, yeah, it's one of those things where you go, okay, pediatrics, they're not just little adults, but exactly. why would it be different in adults <laughs> right. versus kids? It makes sense to me to, to use LR, to use a balanced solution. But as you're saying, if a few drops of normal saline get up before you get in the room, I can stop throwing that as a nurse as they scurry out the room because uh, it's upsetting me so. Yep. What I used to do is I, I take the tubing and I'd make it into a necklace and they'd have to wear the saline that they wasted <laughs> around the rest of the shift. That's awesome. I could probably stop doing that. I guess, huh? <laughs> um, but so if we're going to use LR, I want to know about your thoughts on this co-administration thing, which drives me crazy. I use it a lot for sepsis um, and I'll use it for DKA. So say your DKA child has pylo, maybe as a precipitant to their DKA, and then you're going to give them um, a cephalosporin, ceftriaxone. Would sure. you have to switch from LR? Would you have to establish a second IV, poke the kid twice? How does George Willis handle that kind of situation um, when it arises? Sure. So there's a lot of drug interactions with LR that we know of. And plasma light, unfortunately, is so new that nobody knows what it's actually compatible with. So my <laughs> nurses all the time are like, Dr. Willis, I know we're giving plasma light, but can we give ceftriaxone with plasma light? So we don't really know yet, and there haven't been any studies to really look at plasma light yet. I think it's coming down the pike. Is but that most a no of the news is good news situation? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Go ahead and do it. We'll right. see. They get a big old calcium plug in their arm. We'll know. Right. 
Most of the nurses where I work have no issues co-administering as long as there's no frank contraindications to it. So obviously cephalosporins and LR we know has a has a frank contraindication. So the scenario you bring up is one where the nurses will just flat out say no. And in most of the circumstances, I'm perfectly fine with that. So I usually try to stick to my balanced solutions. And so I will place a second line or people oftentimes forget about the oral antibiotics. Sure, sure. if your patient's vomiting, but a lot of antibiotics have the same bioavailability if it's given orally versus IV. So if the patient can tolerate PO and I'm really concerned about co-administering antibiotics with our balanced solutions, then I would give them PO. Or I'll just place the second line if they're not tolerating PO and run the IV fluids through that and then run the antibiotics or the other medications that may not be compatible with the IV fluids through that second line. Okay. Interesting. Would you ever consider your kind of your personal second line antibiotic that doesn't have a co-administration contraindication just to maintain a single line and allow you to get IV antibiotics in, say IV was indicated? So I've done that before. I will say that um, I have considered giving a second agent that may not um, be the first line just because I knew it was compatible. Again, with plasmolytis, a little bit more difficult, but I may switch from ceftraxone to one of the penicillins or mm-hmm. to another antibiotic just because I know that it is incompatible with LR. Yeah, sure. But and it, it may not be like second line for the disease process, but not you. sometimes you have your first line, right? You have your, right. that's my antibiotic. Absolutely. Um, yeah. don't I don't want to, exactly. I don't want to switch to saline just because I want to give a first line antibiotic. <laughs> I would yeah. more, I don't want to cause any, any long-term stream, long downstream effects by using the saline. And so in, in most circumstances, I'll try to find the antibiotic that is compatible and will certainly still treat the disease processes I'm trying to treat. Okay. Excellent. Perfect. George, that was an excellent conversation. It was. I, I'm a little nervous, but right now I'm going to try to do a summary. Okay. <laughs> okay. Just please correct as I make horrible, horrible errors. Um, all right. So we talked first about insulin and we talked about giving um, insulin to pediatric patients and the risk of cerebral edema. And George stated very plainly that we have not really seen a association between the insulin being given to kids in DK and their progression to cerebral edema. We went on to sort of talk about the insulin dosing for pediatric patients in DK, and George recommends a sort of 0.1 units per kilogram as kind of your baseline mind frame, your your starting point in kids that are very young, kids that are newly recognized as diabetic, maybe using a 0.05 units per kilogram dose, but not to bring it up as high as, you know, sometimes in adults or in some circumstances, we're using the 0.14, probably staying away from that. The, then we talked about sort of when are we out of the woods? When can we stop thinking about cerebral edema? And George basically says never. He says <laughs> all the way up. There's been case reports all the way up into the 20s, um, in particular in patients that are newly recognized diabetics that can have cerebral edema. So it can even extend past true and true, you know, true quote unquote pediatric patients. That said, it is generally something that you're seeing in your younger patients probably something you should be thinking about more in your children that are 15 or less, unless again, it's a newly recognized diabetic. Yep. Fair? Yep. All right. And then we talked a little bit about fluids and fluid administration. And again, a little bit about this idea of cerebral edema. We talked about the idea of giving boluses of fluids and the kind of question of the 10 cc's per kilogram bolus or the 20. And basically, we're recognizing that 
we were quite afraid of this disease, cerebral edema, and we should be, but there's not as strong of an association between the amount, rate, and total volume of flu that we're giving our child and the onset of cerebral edema. So in kids in shock, we're going to want to reach for that 20 cc's per kilogram dose. Kids that are you know a little bit dehydrated, a little bit volume down, maybe start at the 10 cc's per kilogram and then move on to your maintenance fluids. In terms of the maintenance fluids and its type, George is recommending some type of balanced solution. He uses plasmolite. I'm more accustomed to LR, but if you start with a little bit of normal saline because that's what is always grabbed initially, that's okay. But probably as you get into larger volume resuscitations, we should be moving to these balanced solutions. Perfect. And we wrapped wrapped up with just a little bit of a discussion about co-administration, watching your LR and some of your balanced solutions collectively and running them with some co-administration drugs that um, have contraindications, such as ceftriaxones or third-generation cephalosporins. Sounds great. How'd I do? That sounds perfect. Jason, that was an excellent summary. Yes, thank you. All right, George, well, it was a pleasure chatting with you. I appreciate your insight, your time, and I hope to have you on the podcast again. Absolutely. Jason, it was a pleasure. Thank you again for having me on, and I'd be pleased and honored to come back and do it again. Fantastic. Looking forward to it.